0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. Uh, Although sometimes we talk about politics and passion and making a difference in the world. Uh, And we do that when we have uh, an expert uh, and somebody that we can all learn from. And we have that today in the form of Jake Tapper, the Chief Washington Correspondent at CNN, who also hosts the daily show, The Lead, and the Sunday show, State of the Union, and who has been a phenomenal Share Our Strength supporter and very generously participating in our events, uh, sometimes emceeing our events, bringing his children uh, to our cookie and cream uh, events when we were doing things pre-pandemic. And uh, it's really a real treat to have you on, Jake. Thanks for doing this.
1: It's my honor. Um, I'm a huge fan of the work that you guys do, and I try to support it every way I can. Uh, whether it is volunteering or uh, financial support or emceeing or when uh, Mr. Bridges came to town, having him on the show. How is he doing, by the way?
0: Uh, He's doing pretty well. He just had his 71st birthday party on December 4th, his 71st birthday, and he had a small party with about 30 people that I felt fortunate enough to be uh, included. He was in great spirits. We had a great time. He's going through, you know, treatment for lymphoma. And so he's, you know, still dealing with that and some chemo and things like that. But uh, he just seemed phenomenal, had great energy. Um, the The call was with people he'd been making movies with for 40 or 50 years. Uh, virtual. You know,
1: oh, good. Okay. I was going to say a, it was a virtual party.
0: It was a virtual party. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> it was a virtual party. Well,
1: good. I was just like, I hope this is a virtual party because it sounds like he's in addition to being 71 in a uh, vulnerable position uh, in terms of his uh, immune system. So good, 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 good.
0: Yeah. As you can imagine, for somebody like me, maybe you would be the same. To be a fly on the wall when uh, all the, the principals who were involved in making The Last Picture Show oh. were telling telling war stories about The Last Picture Show. And I know you're a guy that likes war stories, usually political ones, but uh, I, I could have just eaten it up all day.
1: Oh, no, I'm actually... Uh... I went, I'm a journalist obviously, but my, my, uh, after college, I went to USC film school for a semester. I wanted to be a, a movie maker and, um, it turns out that, uh I still have a foot in it because I, you know, I write novels and, and, and books that, uh, a, a nonfiction book I wrote was turned into uh, a movie, the outpost. But beyond that, I'm just a huge cinema buff. And the last picture show, obviously, um, just one of the best most brilliant movies of all time i'm trying to think so i i mean i could just go down the cast was so you remember so, sam malion yeah so he was he was there
0: uh he was not on the call no oh, okay. but he he was like i i thought he you know stole that movie in many ways not to mention civil shepherd and you know just everybody who was in it was amazing yeah
1: oh such a great movie peter
0: bogdanovich was on the call and at the party uh he's oh, now 81 cool. And, you know, they made a second, uh, of course, uh, they made a sequel and they're actually talking about uh, making a third off of one of Larry McMurtry's uh, more recent books called Dwayne's Depressed. So uh, it goes on and on.
1: Texas was pretty good, I thought. I mean, obviously, it's very hard to make a sequel 30 years later and, you know, a a sequel to a classic. Um, But it was pretty it was pretty good.
0: Well, I will tell Jeff you asked about him, and he'll be. He'll I love be, that please.
1: guy; such a good, really man. really great guy.
0: Uh, and I mean, speaking of cinema, you know, you've got a relatively recent novel called *The Hellfire Club*, which I think is—is uh, is that being adapted by HBO Max?
1: HBO Max was involved early. Uh, right now, um, I think that we're looking for another streaming service and uh, and and working working on the pilot. Um, the pilot's good. It's really good. Uh, the guy that wrote it, Mark Smith, is a guy. He wrote the The Revenant, uh, and he wrote this new George Clooney movie that's coming out. They just uh, they changed the name of it, so I forget what it's called now. Um, but uh, he's really talented. So th- it is being adapted, but right now uh, we're between homes.
0: Uh, and you're a cartoonist,
1: barely, but yeah.
0: But I mean, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> what, what what do you like talking about the most out of all the things you do? <laughs>
1: I mean, I don't care. I'll talk about any of it. I mean, I really? I uh, I think the way I think of what I of me, I um I think I am a journalist who dabbles in writing, and because I'm a journalist, people think it's cool that I can draw cartoons the way that people might think it's cool that a dog can ride a bike. But uh, <laughs> it's more of a novelty than. Wow, you should be a cartoonist full time, which is something that nobody ever says to me. So, you know, I kind of dabble in and it's just one of these things like when you find out somebody can sing or somebody can juggle and you're like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. It's kind of like that. Um,
0: Well, it's pretty cool. Not many people can do it and not many people get their cartoons published. So, um, you know, there's a bunch of things I want to talk to you. About Jake, in terms of how they intersect with our work, uh, the challenges of reporting on hunger and poverty, how you kind of create an audience for these issues. And although I feel like, uh, you know, I know a bunch of things about your career, uh, I actually don't know where it started. So I was just going to ask you to, you know, I'm sure you've told this story a million times, but I just, what were the very beginnings?
1: Well, I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. Uh, I graduated from Dartmouth in, in 91. And there was a, recession going on. So it wasn't like it was easy to find a job. And I went to film school for a semester and I hated it um, for any number of reasons. Um, one of which was was that I was paying for it. So um, after a semester I left and basically was kind of just like wandering in the desert for eight years in terms of trying to figure out what I wanted to do and doing public relations and being a press secretary, a whole bunch of stuff like that. And then, um, started doing freelance writing. And my first full-time job in journalism was I worked for a guy named David Carr, uh, who went on to become a, a fabled, uh, uh, media reporter for the New York times. He's yeah. he since passed away, but he was the editor of Washington city paper. So that was my first job, uh, was I was a writer for Washington City Paper and from there it was uh, Washington City Paper to salon.com which is right now uh, a, a progressive website but at the time it was more like a kind of it was it was definitely left leaning but it was also you know it ran conservative voices liberal voices mainstream you know moderate voices straight news all sorts of stuff and it was during the the uh, .com bubble so um anyway i was there correspondent and then i started doing some tv uh i had a great job um for for, i i worked for the sundance film channel which was awesome i loved it
0: that sounds like fun
1: yeah that was fun covering the sundance film festival for the sundance film channel was amazing um (laughs) and then uh, and then I had a reel by then and I, and, um, I, I w- went to work for ABC news. So from my first like full-time news job in TV was ABC news. It started in 2003, I think 2003. And then, um, I was there for nine years and I wanted to be an anchor and there just wasn't that job for me available at ABC news. Um, which is, I guess, a nice way of saying that they didn't think of me as an anchor, and and CNN did, and they they hired me, and I, I was Jeff Zucker's first hire when he started running CNN, and um, so that was I started full time right after Inauguration Day, 2013, and uh, that's it. That's how it all started.
0: Uh, and there aren't there aren't many of those jobs, right? I mean, that's a tough thing to want to be an anchor. I understand why people want it, but that's just. There aren't many of those slots.
1: Um, There aren't. There are more of them at, at a, at a, at a cable news channel than there is at a network news channel. Um But yeah, no, it's great. And then, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity and it's, it's also something that, you know, I kind of was learning as I went, even though I'd done some anchoring at ABC news, I'd never been a full-time anchor and, you know, I, I, I think the, the show and I have progressed a lot and changed a lot in the last nine years or however long it's been at CNN. I think if I started in 13, so this is at the end of my seventh year or something like that eighth year. And, um, yeah. And What's it's that been, learning curve like Jake? Well, I mean, it's, it's tough because anchoring is different from reporting and broadcasting is a whole other set of skills. um, they call it broadcasting, but what it really is, is, is how you present the news to the world. So there's a performance angle of it. And that can be, and I talk about this a lot of times with when print reporters come to CNN and join, I I talk to them about this because it's a hurdle because you, it's again, it's not, you're not acting, it's not acting, but there is a degree of uh, how do you present this news? So there is a degree of performance in the same way that somebody in radio has a radio voice or they decide how they are going to communicate in radio or how is a print reporter going to write their first graph. So that is something. Uh, and then also just being a leader, being a leader on TV, the leader of your show, the leader of your staff, how do you deal with other reporters? How do you deal with other anchors? Uh, and that's, you know, it's all part and parcel of, the great experiment of, of doing this. And, um, so, you know, it was, it is a steep learning curve and, you know, there really aren't, and I've tried to correct this in my own way. Now that I'm an old man, um, I'll be 52 in March in reaching out and trying to be more of a mentor to some of the younger reporters at CNN, because it's such a competitive field that mentorship doesn't happen easily. So uh, a lot of the learning curve is a lot steeper than it needs to be.
0: Uh, I've seen pictures of your office, Jake, um, where I've seen lots of uh, kind of political souvenirs and posters on the wall. I don't know if that's still your office or if that's a... Yeah,
1: it's uh, all, they're all posters of candidates who did not win.
0: Well, I was going to ask you uh, for your kind of favorite political souvenir, and then I'm going to tell you one of mine that has to do with you.
1: Well, it has, to, I have a, um, a, I mean, the, the poster is a bunch, the, the The room is a bunch of posters and banners and handkerchiefs, because that was also a thing in the 1800s of, um, losing candidates, people who ran for president and lost or didn't win. They're um, some of
0: my favorite people, by the way.
1: I'm sure. I'm sure. i some having, having worked people. for quite a few of them. <laughs> I'll bet. No, I know that actually. So, so, um, I guess that, I mean, the, the, the most special one is the autographed letter and photograph that Gary Hart sent me in 1984 when I was, a uh, uh, 15 years old and I had, uh, gone to an event that he had and gave him a drawing. I did of him, a cartoon I did of him. And then I wrote him a letter asking for an interview for my school newspaper and he turned me down. So it's a letter from Gary Hart. Uh, t- turning me down for my interview request, but I get. The, but the and the oldest of, the oldest uh, thing I have is a is a uh, Henry Clay poster, which wow. is from like I think eighteen eighteen forty four. Uh, but the coolest one I have, I really have. I mean, like it's a. I'm very proud of this collection. I'll have to bequeath it to to my alma mater when I die, because otherwise, it's just going to end up in a box. If I give it to my kids uh, or my wife, uh, but I have a really cool giant Al Smith poster from his presidential run uh, that I just randomly got on eBay when I started this collection in I don't even know 2003 or something like that, just for a steal um, before uh, the collection business really started bursting and, go- and booming, uh, going through the the roof because of. The internet has really done has really um, priced a lot of collectibles up because there's so much more of a world where people are will, willing to bid on things. The, I, I've just noticed just in the last couple of years, as I'm also a big fan of Jackie Robinson and just the price of his. His baseball cards are just going up and up and up and up because so many more people are bidding. Uh, who, anyway, who, 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 tell me about your favorite political Well, our,
0: our, ours intersect, uh, and you can probably guess it by now, which is I, I'm in possession of a letter from a 15 year old jacob tapper come on gary hart yep come on (laughs) yep uh and i've got this letter i don't have it on me right now do you really
1: have that
0: i've got that letter and i'm going to have to send it to you or send you a copy i think i want to keep the original but it's the letter you described i thought it was a 13 year old jacob tapper but it might be 15 year old uh writing to senator hart uh just as you described and i you know i was trying to think uh in anticipation of talking to you today where we got that letter and I'm pretty sure it came out of a, a box of heart files. I was trying to remember if possibly you had unearthed it and sent it to me, but you wouldn't have it because no. you mailed it off.
1: So, no, I haven't anyhow, seen I'm it gonna, since I'm, I'm Make it. sure
0: you get a copy of it. Yeah, oh, there we go. No at it, it was I have like no idea at yeah, that is so. And I kept looking at the funny. name the Jacob Tapp, you a picture. Tapper. Jacob Tapper. That sounds familiar. Of course, I only think of you as Jake, like everybody does. So, uh, right. anyhow, I'll, I'll make sure you get a copy of that. Kind of. Fun. Oh, that
1: is unbelievable. I I'm trying to think. I mean, like he ran for president in '84 and '88. So it was '84. It had. I had to have been. I might have been 14. It was a, 14 yeah. or 15, somewhere in there. Okay. Um, that is so funny. It was this event he did at the Please touch museum, which is a children's museum in Philadelphia. And everybody there was like under nine, under eight. And then I was there I was 15. I felt very awkward being there, but I was a huge political junkie and a big fan of, of, uh, Senator Hart, um, who I've told this story to. He has, I have since gotten interviews with him on CNN and, uh, He's a, he's such a, a, a brilliant guy. And, uh, but well, that's a whole other conversation you and me about Gary Hartson. Well, our paths
0: might've crossed then. Cause you know, as I, as I think, you know, you know, back in the day I was, what was called his, you know, his body guy. And so I traveled yeah. everywhere he went with him from 1982 on really until he got out of politics in 88. Um, so we, we, we might've crossed paths in Philadelphia. Who knows? That's
1: funny. Well, you probably, if you were there in 84, then I, I'm sure, Oh yeah, uh, I was there. You were just like keeping an eye on who's that weird teenager with uh, in the in the crowd with all the kids. <laughs> uh,
0: someday I'm going to have to come see your your posters. I'd love to see them. I've seen the oh, picture yeah. of them. Oh yeah, it makes my mouth water. I, I love that kind of stuff. So, um, hey, uh, before we get into uh, wh- how your work intersects with our work at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Uh, the other thing I have to ask you, even though we you know, we could talk about it for hours and we don't have hours, and I know you talk about it a lot, um, and you alluded to this in a way, is just, uh, I just would love to hear firsthand your take on uh, media journalism has changed so much, even in the relatively short span of time that you've been doing it. Uh, how do you process it? Where do you think it's going? What do you feel good about? What do you feel bad about?
1: I mean, it's changed just in the last four years, much less since I started in journalism in the late 90s or started in TV journalism 17 years ago. I mean, it's just, I I feel, um, I feel conflicted about where it's going right now. I feel like there is the potential for TV journalism and journalism in general to get better and become amazing and and i say that because um i think there is the capacity for people whose eyes have been um opened during the trump administration to stay engaged and stay outraged um so for instance very few people were expressing outrage about um the obama administration's deportation policies or putting minors in cages although to be i don't know to be fair is the right term but but the, but it was it, it the, the kids that were put in cages were it, it was an unaccompanied minors uh crisis not a uh, child separation crisis in uh during the obama years but still it's something to be outraged by and I feel like there is a degree to which maybe both the public and the media, the news media, can be consistently outraged, not only when Trump does something so over the top, but also when things that we're, maybe we got used to or, or things that maybe some people in the media wouldn't be as outraged by because a Democrat did it as opposed to a Republican or or just whatever. If Maybe if our... Our antenna are up and our sensitivities are heightened, maybe things, maybe journalism can, can be even better, which is not to say that there weren't journalists who were doing it right this whole time, but I think that there's a potential for it to be even better. That's one. Yeah, okay. That would be the path I would like. The path I would not like would be, um, the bubbleizing of media, you know, conservatives and Trump people watch Fox liberals and progressives and Biden people watch MSNBC, um, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody just retreats into their bubbles to be comfortable and complacent and uh, things get worse. And, and it continues to be like watching two broadcasts from two different planets. If you flip between MSNBC and, and, uh, and Fox. So, I don't know where we're going to end up, but that's wh- where we are. I think. And for
0: yourself, how do you manage or think about or bring intentionality to kind of the outrage factor? You know, for me, watching uh, you deliver the news, one of the things that uh, I like about it is that I feel like you bring a lot of humanity to it. And when and when you know you're expressing exasperation. It's usually I'm feeling exasperation when you're expressing outrage. I'm feeling uh, outrage. Um, and are there are there days where you just say I'm gonna let it come through, or are there days where you say I've got i I've
1: got to contain it? How do you think about that? It, it's it's re- It's much more organic than that. It, it's it's really just what what I'm experiencing in the moment. And look, I mean, there were times during the Obama years where I would express outrage um, uh, about things, whether it was about press secretaries not being honest or about, uh, you know, the way that the Obama administration went after the news media um, legally in courts, uh, whether, you know, during the VA scandal, which is a scandal that CNN broke. um, And I remember the White House chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, came on the show and I, I really let him have it. And, so there's that. I mean, it's just it really just comes through or, or it doesn't come through based on the incident and what I'm feeling at the time. Now, I have to say, like, obviously, I don't want to pretend that the Obama administration and the Trump administration were the same in terms of things that were outrageous. I mean, right now, the president of the United States, wielding a bunch of lies and conspiracy theories, is pressuring um, Republican Legislators and judges and justices, uh, Republican legislators, and I'm not calling the judges or justices Republican. uh, Is pressuring them to to overturn the results of election, which can what can only really be described as a nonviolent attempt at a coup, um, that would um, disenfranchise millions of voters and undercut the will of the American people, and so that is so outrageous. And so, you know, I'm outraged by that. I'm also today I am outraged by uh, to a lesser extent, um, but I am still outraged by the fact that two of our reporters, Evan Perez and Pamela Brown, were reporting on the fact that they had learned that the U.S. attorney in Delaware was investigating Hunter Biden for uh, possible alleged tax and money laundering violations for business dealings in places like China. And they went to the Hunter Biden's lawyer and they said that the lawyer said he would get back to them. And then next thing you know, the Biden transition team is putting out a statement and, you know, getting the story out Mm -hmm. on their own terms Mm -hmm. uh, with spin and everything. Now, look, it's not the same thing as trying to stage a nonviolent coup, but I do find it also outrageous. So that's also one of the things that like has been uh, a challenge to balance um, throughout this these four years and will continue to be, which is uh, not allowing the way that Trump has degraded so many norms and standards to numb us to, you know, garden variety violations of norms and standards.
0: As a journalist, you think you're going to will you miss anything about the last? four years, just in terms of the intensity, everyone's kind of predicting, you know, where the, the life is going to be a, lo- a lot more normal in terms of our news cycles and politics. Um, where you have to decompress.
1: I mean, I, I, uh, it's been, um, no, I don't know that I'll miss it. I mean, I think, you know, I think what will happen is a lot of the people who, have loved me for the last four years will hate me. And I think a lot of the people who have hated me for the last four years will (laughs) uh, find a a grudging respect or suddenly find themselves retweeting me a lot more often, but we're not there yet. And that's kind of just par for the course. I, I, will I miss anything? Um, no, not really. I mean, um, well, not every standard that he's, um, ended has been bad. Like for instance, I don't think the, uh, events where reporters and, um, the people we cover mingle, I think it looked like the white house correspondence dinner or the gridiron dinner, things like that. Like, even though I go to them and I'm a member of both the white house correspondence association and the gridiron, um, i I don't feel completely comfortable doing that sort of thing just because it just i think it looks wrong and feels wrong in a lot of ways we're not supposed to be chummy with these people and so Trump refusing to attend those things uh in some ways has been a good thing so maybe I'll miss that having to go having to having to go to these dinners again
0: uh, the tux may have to go back on soon right uh Jake two of the issues that I associate your interests with philanthropic and otherwise are the hunger issue that we work on. And as we mentioned that you'd been active in and also, uh, veterans issues, which I feel like you've been outspoken on, uh, where does it come in, from in both cases?
1: Well, the hunger issue is, is a, a lot of it's from you, Billy, um, you reaching out and getting me involved and, um, me realizing that I don't cover it enough this year, we've covered it a lot, obviously, cause there's been a lot of hunger, Uh, And a lot of challenges in terms of feeding people, feeding kids. Uh, And I, again, invite you to let me know when there are stories out there that I need to share about people trying to feed these kids. I remember doing a story about a lunch lady who was like smuggling food to kids because they were starving and she got fired. So that you can take credit for. And and I, again, invite you to have your people call me when there are stories out there that we should be covering um, because I think they're important. And I don't see them all. Uh, the veterans issue, that's probably, uh, there's a lot of stuff that led into that. My grandfather was a veteran. His brother was killed in World War II as a, you know, in the Air Force. Covering John McCain in 2000 meant a lot to me because I saw a lot of Vietnam veterans feeling recognition. And they felt noticed for the first time, maybe since getting back from the war um, by having McCain running for office. So all that led into my having tremendous respect for service. But I don't think it was truly until uh, I was in a hospital recovery room uh, with my wife after she'd given birth to our son, Jack, in October 2009, that I looked on the TV and I heard about this outpost, combat outpost Keating, that had been attacked overwhelmingly by insurgents. And there was just something poignant in the moment of holding my son and hearing about eight, eight American sons taken from this earth. And I wanted to know more about the Combat Outpost Keating. Everybody kept saying nobody knows why they put an outpost there at the bottom of three steep mountains so close to the Pakistan border. And I never found out why they did, and it just became an obsession. It ended up being a book project, and the, the outpost book came out in um, 2012. And then a couple of the guys in the book were awarded the Medal of Honor in 2013. And then um, they made it into a movie that came out this year it's on Netflix right now and just getting to know it was just it's just the biggest journalistic project i've ever worked on in more than 200 interviews and i traveled to afghanistan a couple times and you know came face to face with um the, the loss and the sacrifice and just heartbreaking stories uh of our fellow americans and that just opened my eyes and then from there it just became something that i just was much more aware of And um, one time doing a story about a guest of, uh, I guess it was then President Obama at the State of the Union, a a wounded veteran. He told me about a group called Homes for Our Troops that had just given him a a built built a specially designed home for him. Uh, He was severely wounded. I think he was missing a leg. And then I started doing stuff for them and raising money for them. And so, I don't know, That's it's just... It feels like something important to be part of.
0: And You talked about um, how MSNBC and Fox News can be almost like, you know, two parallel universes that don't intersect. I sometimes feel the same way about the community of our armed forces and and those who, who, who don't serve, particularly during uh, wartime. There's so little sense of the sacrifices that military families make, including many military families who experience hunger, but it's just, you know, it's just such a completely different world. And, you know, you've got the vast majority of Americans, particularly young Americans who are not engaged in military service. And I feel like everything that we can do to help people understand that world is so important because it's an incredible commitment to this country. And most of us have very little, you know, we don't cross paths with it. We don't intersect with it. Sometimes I go out to Arlington Cemetery. Uh, And it's, you know, it's uh, six subway stops from my office, downtown DC. It's 12 minutes. It's right there. Uh, How many times do people really go there and try to understand what's going on in section 61 where section 60, where soldiers uh, were buried? It just seems like so far away and yet it's so close in so many ways.
1: Yeah. Can I say something though? I mean, part of the problem is the military, uh, part of the problem. And this, this is this was a real problem, and this is a real issue for me when, whenever I talk to anybody at the Pentagon. I wrote the outpost despite the help, despite the lack of help from the Pentagon. Hmm. Um, they, they were not helpful. Public information officers do not, I, I mean, I don't know what it is, if it's because of Vietnam or, or just bureaucrats or whatever, but it, it's not easy to get information from the Pentagon uh, about like individual stories of heroism. It's not like things happen and they're like, let's let's offer this to the New York Times. Let's offer this to CNN. Let's offer this to this Bob Woodward, who we want him to. I mean, it is a struggle to get these stories told.
0: So just a culture that's kind of closed and defensive and in a kind of a defensive crouch.
1: Yeah. Not only that, um, you you mentioned uh, Arlington. I took my kids to Arlington uh, on veterans day. And we couldn't get in because we're not military. We're not, we, we're not gold star families. We're we're not, we don't have, we don't have any loved ones there. Hmm. We just wanted to go and pay honor and pay tribute to lost veterans. And, you know, some of the guys that I have wrote about in my book are in there. And, uh, be, I guess because of COVID, Um, they wouldn't let us in, even although, you know, by the way, we're wearing masks and it's outdoors and it's not like there were thousands of people there. So it didn't make any sense. But to me, it was symbolic of how tough it is, uh, how the Pentagon uh, makes it difficult to honor these people, which is not to say that it's their fault. I mean, there's obviously a chasm and it's on us in the public and in us in the news media to, to write about these people or to, or to pay, pay tribute to them. But they don't make it easy. They really don't. And um, it's a pet peeve of mine. And I've, I've said it to people at the Pentagon and no, nothing changes. But
0: I mean, well, like, for well, instance,
1: it, I, it I feels mean, like
0: you've done a good job overcoming it.
1: <laughs> well, but it's a, it was a lot of work. And there yeah. were a lot of stories that uh, I, I didn't tell um, that I wanted to tell. You know, just of like somebody who did a heroic rescue in the middle of a firefight, probably the scariest, worst, and also most heroic day of their life, and the military wouldn't let me talk to them hmm. I mean you know hmm. it, it i i'm 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 whining, so I'll stop but in any case well let, let me ask you for advice on our issue. You
0: pointed out that during this pandemic, there's been a lot of attention to hunger, and there has a lot of stories and images of the the lines at food banks. Uh, and in fact, we're, I, I think we're seeing, you know, certainly having done this work for 35 years, uh, the greatest need that we've ever seen in terms of hungry Americans of all ages, of all backgrounds. And as you know, about 40% of the uh, people in food lines today are people who have never been in that situation before. It's, right. it's for the first time. A- absent, and, and, and by the way, Americans have, have responded with just absolutely remarkable Generosity. We've been able, Jake, to make grants, and this is unprecedented for us. We're making grants of a million dollars a day, every day, for the last 40 days to food banks, to school districts, to school systems who are feeding kids in alternative ways. I mean, literally, you know, close to $100 million poured in to uh, share our strength over the last number of months. And of course, it's our obligation to get it back out the door. My question has to do with when we're not in a pandemic, you know, how, how do you do two things? I guess one is, uh, get attention to the issues of hunger and poverty and, uh, particularly related to poverty. You know, one of the things that we always struggle with is hunger is really a symptom of a set of deeper issues. Right. And so everybody's interested in the story about a hungry child. Not everybody's interested in a story. And it's not just journalism. This is our, our challenge at our work, uh, in, uh, how you make sure that that child's parents have the opportunities that they need. And the parents may not be as sympathetic as the, the warm and cuddly child. Uh, any thoughts or advice about how is, you know, assuming we get back to a normal world, how we ought to be thinking about that?
1: I mean, just the, the way I always think about these stories in terms of, um, You know, first of all, the larger holistic issues that leads to hunger, that lead to hunger, A, or B, just individual stories are like, there are a bunch of reporters, journalists who want to know, who want to tell these stories. And there are a bunch of Americans who want to hear them. And the more that um, people... Share a strength or 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 anyone who's interested in this issue can find people to tell these stories and say, We're having this issue with this individual school, or this these people need help, or the more attention they will they will get. And so it's really just to me, it's just it's as simple as you hear a moving story from Wisconsin and you send me an email and then at the very least I can tweet about it. But beyond that, um, I can, you know, have a reporter do it. Um, we've done that before. You know, that we've, you, you yeah. guys have, have, have told me stories and we've gone and, and told them. Um, I think it was a couple of years ago was the last one we did, or maybe it was last year. Um, but there's a guy that works for GoFundMe. Who uh, and I hate the fact that GoFundMe even has to exist, much less homes for our troops. I mean, this this is the American people, you know, plugging the holes that our government doesn't fill. But whenever there is a story or an, an account, uh, somebody who really needs help, and he doesn't do it all that often, maybe once a month, uh, he sends me an email. He sends me a private email about a case that he thinks is worth highlighting, and I will tweet about it. And you know, it gets money. People see it. Yep. And um, I, I, there was another time, I was at some veterans event, and somebody talked about how they needed volunteers for an event having to do with veterans, and they reached out to me, and I tweeted about it, and they got like, this is just—I think it was in Minnesota—and they got like forty-seven people showed up. Yep. I, I think there's it. just a tremendous amount of goodwill. Out there, and it just needs to be tapped. And social media is not all bad; it can it can be good. It can be used for good. Um, and so, I just urge you to find people like me and others um, at other media organizations to tell the stories. Um, and you know, the main thing for for anybody in journalism is it we need we need a story to tell you identify the needs and you have the campaign and your organization, but what the American people need to know is show me somebody whose story I can understand. And I can try to understand, understand it that way. Like I could, I could do a piece about, you know, the war in Somalia or the, you know, or, or the war in Yemen or whatever, but like, it's an individual story from Yemen or in Afghanistan it's an individual camp. I'm going to try to understand the war in Afghanistan by looking at this one camp. And that's how people understand problems is by looking at is by going big by going small. So the more that you can do that and help me people like me tell your stories the, the better, I think. Well, it's so
0: important and I'll try not to abuse your uh, email contact uh, because you've always been so responsive. But, you know, one of the things that I think is so, to me, powerful about the hunger issue is it really is all about, and this is true of other issues as well, but in our case, it's all about awareness and creating political will because, you know, we have no shortage of food in this country. We have no shortage of food programs. Kids in America aren't hungry for the same reason that kids around the rest of the world are hungry. We have everything we need. To me, this is the, the most solvable problem that there is. And even in the uh, course of this terrible pandemic, I would argue that the, the the aspect of it that is most solvable is feeding people because you know we worry about shortages of vaccines and ventilators and everything else. No shortages of food in the U.S., no shortages of food programs like SNAP or school meals. So having the political will will to connect people to them. And we've seen that political will grow, certainly during uh, the pandemic, because of the increased awareness. Um, So all that to say what you already know, which is you you play and your industry plays an absolutely vital role in- But use me more. Use
1: me more, Billy. I mean, send me more emails, send me more, even just like the very, I mean, the very least I can do is just to tweet out a story and like I'm followed by, and this isn't bragging or anything. I don't think this is any, some great accomplishment and it's nothing compared to like, you know, Taylor Swift, but I'm followed by 3 million people. A lot of those people are journalists. Yep. A lot of those people are journalists, local TV and print journalists. And if I, I've seen it happen that I will, I will tweet out a story that somebody brings my attention to. And it gets local news coverage because that's not some great achievement by me. I just happen to be in this place at this time with this platform. But it'll happen. And like, and and the American people, just like people worldwide, I, I just believe in my heart are fundamentally good, and they want to solve the problem. They want nobody supports child hunger. Everybody wants to help. So it's just the more you can help, get the individual stories out there about. This lunch lady who got fired because she was feeding a kid secretly or, you know, whatever, just any story that highlights the issue and you can help the problem of child hunger by donating to blah, 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 you know, anything like that. I'm, I'm always here.
0: Well, thank you. Uh Last two things I, I want to ask you about. One, one relates to exactly that as kind of a student of political history and a really astute student of political history. How do you think about where the the energy that drive drives change comes from? Do you think of it coming from the top from the grassroots? Obviously that it meets somewhere in the middle? Uh, we've been focusing on as, as I talked about political will and the role of uh, awareness in the media. We've been focusing on you know creating a larger uh, base of people who care about uh, this issue what what's what's just your own observation about? political change, whether it's climate change or hunger or veterans issues uh, in terms of what's, what, what are the key foundational elements that you have to have?
1: Well, I mean, one of the problems with a lot of this stuff, especially in this day and age and this, I, I do worry it's getting worse is um, a common set of facts. Um, so, you know, that, that, that has been a problem with climate change. And that's changing now because the facts are just so obvious, and people see it. But um, you know, we're we're in a war over facts in the news media and politicians too. And so, um, I mean, there's a whole right now. Two of the biggest stories are fundamentally about that: people who deny COVID and and the seriousness of it. And people who deny the election results. And in both cases, the leading purveyor of disinformation is the president of the United States, who is very powerful and has a lot of people supporting him. I'll be honest, um, Billy, I'm amazed that we made it to December 2007, uh, 2020 and President Trump has never voiced skepticism about the Holocaust. Honestly, like th- that, that was like one of my greatest fears is like, wow, at some point, And I guess we should be happy that, um, Ivanka, I
0: hope you're not giving them the idea right now.
1: No, no. I, I, I think that Ivanka and Jared are probably a safeguard against it, but like he has been a, a conspiracy theorist about so many things. Um, that I like, it honestly was like a big fear of mine that he was somehow at some point going to give voice to that deranged conspiracy theory. So I'm glad we, ne- I'm glad we never got there. Yes. I'm not going to give him points for it, but I'm glad we never got there. But, but the idea of having a common set of facts, for instance, I have heard, and this, this just something that touches on your issue is whenever I repeat, um, online, on Twitter, like, uh, about what a food insecure kid is, Um, a bunch of professional skeptics, not conspiracy theorists, um, some of them just, like, in a healthy way, people that, you know, want to, like, poke and prod anytime anybody uses a term like food insecure, what does that mean? Um, That people are very skeptical about the media, people are very skeptical about powers that be and they don't know what things mean. And I think the more explicit any organization can be about what they're talking about the better. Um so I'm not saying don't use the term food insecure but but I I would just define it. Yep. You, you know, know I <laughs> I've people, actually people, never been a
0: fan of the term because it's really a socioeconomic measure. People want to know, are kids hungry or are they not hungry?
1: Right, right. Not what it means is, well, you you define it because I, I think I know what it means, but you, you're the expert. So you talk what does it mean to for a kid to be food insecure?
0: Yeah. And it, it, it's an it's an important metric, but it's I don't think it's the consumer facing metric we would use. And, and what it's based on is the Census Bureau asking a battery of uh, 18, you know, very specific Questions about, you know, and as I say, it's a socioeconomic measure. Is there a, a period of time uh, towards the end of the month or at any time in the month where you feel you may not be able to uh, make your grocery dollars stretch to feed the entire family? Is there a time at which you've taken shortcuts, um, cooking meals, uh, because you were concerned that you might not be able to? Uh, afford to feed your family for the entire month. So you can have this paradoxical situation, and I've I've actually seen it in very real and specific instances in which a family presents legitimately as food insecure. They're living on the margin and they're under terrible economic stress, uh, but their kids are getting three meals a day. Uh, They're getting a school breakfast. They're getting a school lunch. They might be getting an after-school snack. Uh, The family might have other types of food assistance. So are they food insecure? Yes. And we've got to deal with that in a triage sense. Uh, are they hungry? Maybe not. And that's good to know because then we can focus our efforts on the kids who literally are hungry in a physiological sense. It's hard to yeah. tease out, obviously, but, uh, but, it, but it's I,
1: I, I, I just think that the more that people understand what hunger is, people don't understand, um, well, she fed us uh, macaroni and cheese on the 29th because it was cheaper. I'm not, I'm not trying to be glib about it, but like people just want to know what the facts are. And, and I think terms like food insecure, uh, obfuscate more than elucidate in some ways. Yep. Uh, um, so I, I just, that's the only advice I would give to you is just like, nobody wants us to be a problem. I mean, like as, as you and Jeff Bridges said last time you we were on the show, like this is something everyone can agree. Shouldn't be an issue in the United States. Um, and You and your organization have been scrupulously bipartisan and worked so hard so that uh, I've heard Senator Pat Roberts uh, be honored at your events and on and on. Uh, Very conservative Republican senator, although in in today's world of Republicans, I don't know if he's very conservative, but but. Generally speaking, I think of as a very conservative Republican. Um, So that's all. That's the only note I would make uh, is just to use terms people understand. But other than that, um, I just think the just stating the facts and 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 uh, trying to figure out how to fix it. um, You know, it's just you know, this is just something that should not even be an issue in the United States. And it's crazy that it is.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm convinced it's solvable. I'm convinced that we'll actually see it solved in our lifetime, the pandemic set us back a few years, but, um, but we'll, we'll, get there. Uh, you've been super generous with your time. We've got to wrap up. I was going to ask you if you've got a, a tip to share about how in the midst of a pandemic and an all-consuming presidential campaign, uh, you, Jack, Jake Tapper managed to stay physically and mentally healthy. Any strategies, pandemic strategies uh-huh. that we should know of that we can share?
1: Well, I'm like, I mean, I, here, here are the things I did. Um, I, uh, I have a wonderful wife and an amazing daughter and son. So that really helped uh, get me through the day. I have a job I love. And luckily, my job is one that um, was in more need than ever uh, during the pandemic. Um, people wanted to know the news uh, a, a lot uh, more than even they normally did. So I was very fortunate. Or I am very fortunate because we're certainly not out of the woods. Um, I did, uh, we have a Peloton bike, uh, which is expensive. So you don't need to have a Peloton bike, but having some sort of exercise, uh, which you do like five days a week has been very, very helpful to me just in terms of mental health. Um, And I had a side project in addition to my job. Um, I was working, you talked about the Hellfire Club. I finished the sequel to the Hellfire Club. Um, what's that going to be called during this pandemic? It's called the devil may dance and it's, uh, it will come out in May. Wow. I didn't have a commute from March until, uh, August. I did the show from my home from spare room. And so I had all this time that I wasn't in the car and I would spend every day. I would spend, you know, at least an hour trying to write and I was able to do this. So, You know, but I don't want to pretend that like, it's been easy. It's really awful and it sucks and it continues to suck. And it's really the hardest on, um, I think it's the easiest on me of the four in my family because remote education is just brutal. And, um, I think all the time, Billy, I think about the people that you feed the kids that you feed, because I know how tough remote education is on my kids. And, you know, these are very privileged kids and i can't imagine all the kids slipping through the cracks because not because their parents are working um or their parents are having a tough time during the pandemic or their parents are you know frontline healthcare workers uh nurses or paramedics or their parents um are minimum wage workers and they're you know or, or they're at meat packing plants or whatever and all these kids who maybe they don't in addition to being food insecure they're they're they don't have good Wi-Fi, or they, you know, or they don't have a good computer or they don't have adult supervision or they're miserable. Or so, I mean, I just really, really worry. That's really one of the issues. I, the, the, my biggest concerns about this pandemic and in, in addition to obviously the health ramifications and the economic ramifications is I'm really afraid we're, we're going to lose like tens of thousands of kids who are just going to check out uh, or be emotionally scarred because of, The shutting down of the schools, which is a whole other, separate conversation for another day.
0: Yeah, and and you know some of them already have, Jake. If you talk to, you know, school administrators, the number of kids for schools that have gone online who just just are just flat out not showing up at all. I don't mean like logging on and not paying attention. I mean not even logging on. It's uh, it's frightening. Um, One thing I should tell you, since you mentioned Peloton. You may live to regret it. You might have just accidentally peddled into uh, something. We do an uh, annual event when there's not a pandemic going on called Chef's Cycle. Uh, it's 300 chefs who who ride 300 miles on their bikes, 100 miles a day for three days. Um, and we have some non-chef stragglers like me, for example. Uh, two years ago, we had the singer Pink. Um, and so uh, we may be coming after Jake Tapper someday if, uh, if you're in that good of shape on the Peloton.
1: <laughs> I didn't say I was in good shape. I just said I did it.
0: <laughs> hey Jake, uh, last thing. We usually talk about food on this podcast. We didn't today, but, uh, I was going to ask you if you've just got a favorite restaurant that we should know about. I sometimes spy you on a, at a Connecticut Avenue restaurant that I'm not going to mention because I don't want people to bug you while you're eating outdoors there. But, uh, is there a favorite place where you and your family go?
1: Well, we, um, we, there are a ton of restaurants, uh, that we go to, um, uh, We go to Parthenon, we go to box fishing and camping, we go to, but you know, we've been eating in so often, uh, because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, no,
0: it's, it's really a, a post pandemic question or a pre pandemic question. Yeah.
1: It's really, cause I, cause there's so many, we're eating this Israeli food tonight that is so good, but I can't tell you the name of the restaurant. I just know Jen, my wife uh, orders from there like once a week. Um, uh, Spices in Cleveland Park. I love that place. I'm. I might be the only one in the family that loves it. But Spices in Cleveland Park, um, and oh, I don't know. I'm. Well, I don't those, have any refined palate. Those are all.
0: Those are all good ones. Uh, and Jake, I hope you'll thank your whole family for me because your entire family has been involved in Shower Strength and our No Kid Hungry campaign, and it, it's really wonderful to see kids embracing these values and knowing that there's a, a next generation that's going to support this but it's great that you've done so much for us as a family in addition to what you've personally done at our events so uh, please pass along our thanks
1: well thank you for the great work you do Billy I really appreciate it and uh, you know the affection I have for you and Debbie and and Jeff and 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 the whole gang there so I'm sure you'll be in touch soon and and keep keep using me however you can use me
0: We will. We're so grateful to have this opportunity to talk to Jake Tapper from CNN. Uh, He's got a daily show called The Lead. He's got Sunday's State of the Union. And he's got a new book coming out, which is a sequel, I guess, to the Hellfire Club, and it's called The Devil May Dance. So congratulations on that. Uh, Jake, thanks for being with us on behalf of all of us at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign our team there that helps put together all of our communications in this podcast and our producer at District Productive, Paul Whittle. Thanks for listening. I'm Billy Shore. This has been Ad Passion and Start.